Thank you, Luigi. Love that song and glad for the, uh, him getting through it with that, uh, that swallowed the frog and it crossed its legs there in his throat. John chapter 14 tonight. John chapter 14. Continue to pray for Miss Kim Bartlett as she's going through her navigation of treatment. And then Mrs. Walden, she'll be starting up her treatment, chemotherapy, probably next week. And then Miss Margaret Shannon, she was admitted to the hospital. And so let's pray for these and remember these in prayer. And then thank you for praying for Christy still. Still struggling, just having a, a kind of a setback. And, um, but she'll be going to the doctor, I think on Monday, and hopefully we'll get a, an update there that will explain some of these um, uh, unique pains that, that she has. John chapter number 14, we have that? Hey. Let's go ahead and stand and let's read. We're going to read the first three verses. This very familiar passage, a passage that's read probably more often at a bedside of one who is slipping from this life to the next and has been read in many a funeral service. And, um, and I think there's obvious reasons why. If you don't know it, maybe you will when we read it together here. John 14, let's look at it in verse number one. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus says. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Look at it again, verse number one. Let's read verse one together. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God Believe also in me. Thank you. Please be seated. Here the disciples are being forced to deal with the coming death of Jesus Christ. This is the night before his crucifixion. It's the night that has been looked upon, that he's been living his earthly pilgrimage here for. And, and this has been set aside for him to prepare them for life after the cross. He tells them he's leaving. He tells them they cannot follow where he's going. They're confused. In chapter 13, Simon Peter, he expresses his perplexity. In chapter 14, Thomas and Philip, they're also going to interject to let you know that they're confused by what Jesus is saying. He's peppered with questions and they're trying to cut through the haze that has been placed upon them by these words of Jesus. His, uh, his departure is not just confusing to them, but he's Jesus, that is, he's met with resistance. Peter proclaims his undying allegiance to Jesus. In effect, he's telling Jesus he's wrong and they will follow him wherever he goes. And so there's some opposition 
to what the Lord's trying to get them to see is this great plan and, and, and process that is so vitally important thousands of years before this and, and the 2,000 since have hinged upon this event that Jesus is referring to and yet they're not quite getting it. The overwhelming response is not all that much confusion and resistance, though we see it, but it is more so, I believe, anxiety. Jesus begins that chapter in chapter 14. He's acknowledging the disciples' feelings. He understands his announcements causing their hearts to be troubled. This word troubled is used earlier in the gospel in John chapter 5 where the Bible says, that Jesus comes into the place where there's a multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And uh, the, the angel comes down, rather, in John 5 and, and stirs and moves and troubles that water. And this word trouble is the same Greek word that is used, indicating that the disciples' hearts are troubled. They're all stirred up like in a mixing bowl. Doubt and confusion, uncertainty and fear being all stirred up around inside their hearts. And this potent mixture of emotions is motivated all by Jesus saying, I'm departing. But how can he leave them at this time? Why can't they follow him this time? And you take those questions and you add them to the fact that one disciple will betray Jesus and another disciple will deny Jesus. And you have a recipe for some anxiety that's even enough to paralyze the most mature of disciples. In this emotionally trying moment, Jesus, however, brings comfort to the disciples. Remarkably, to me, is that he can even think of somebody else other than himself about what he's getting ready to go through. Yet here he is about to take upon himself the, the sin of you and me, the sin of the world. He's on the verge of experiencing the wrath of God for our sin, yet he compassionately reaches out to comfort his disciples. At a time when the disciples' heart is the most troubled, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. The main idea here is that Jesus comforts his disciples with a promise. With the promise of life forever and with him in heaven. Jesus gave his disciples a command in verse 1. What's the command? Ultimately the command is, trust me. Jesus is saying to his disciples, trust me. And then he gives his disciples confidence in verses 2 and 3. Verse 1, he gives a command, trust me. Verse 2 and 3, he gives confidence. Here's why you can trust me. Verse 1, the command to trust me. Verse 2 and 3, here's why. How can he say, let not your heart be troubled? 
And that's what verse 2 and 3, he's, he's giving them. He tells the disciples that they can have confidence because he's leaving to prepare a place for them. He's heading to the Father's house and then that they will be with him forever in heaven. And for that reason, I want to launch into a new series. I've never preached this series. In fact, I haven't preached any of the series that, we've, that I've preached until I've preached them. But I've never even preached a message. It's hard to believe. I haven't preached a message on this subject. But we're going to walk through it. don't know how many messages, around at least eight, the thing may grow and, and, and it'll hinge upon several factors. But taking Jesus's approach to dealing with anxiety to bring comfort and how comfort is ministered here, it's by understanding that Jesus is heading to the Father and that there is yet the promise of eternity with him in heaven, I want to launch into a series on heaven. Heaven. The questions that we may ask about heaven. I mentioned to Brother Audrey on the platform preaching a new series tonight, starting a new series on heaven. He said, that's good. That's where I'm going. And so... Uh, <laughs> It'll be good. And, and it's, I used to think maybe um, there's a lot of not wanting to spend too much time on it because um, that's what, where we're going. So why spend too much time? Until I begin to understand Jesus used this as a form of encouragement. And so tonight, as it is on the screen, we're going to look at the theology of heaven. And this is extremely basic and very simple, but... I want us to see there is a theology of heaven. Then we're going to work through things in the weeks to come. And, uh, and if you have questions about heaven, put them in writing. Give it to me. I say put it in writing so I can have it. You tell me I won't remember it. But if you put it in writing, because what I want us to do is answer the questions that we may have about heaven. I'm going to try to throw a few of them out there tonight. Some that maybe we think we would never we would never verbalize, but I think we think them, and so I want to just touch on uh, something. But this will be our starting place. And so tonight, I want you to to understand this theology of, of heaven that most Americans believe in some kind of a heaven, but there are many varied opinions among Americans about what heaven is and what heaven would be like. I just typed in a search of movies about heaven. And there's a bunch of those from kids to cartoons to adults to comedies to, to uh, 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 Christian movies. And it's true, not every person uh, who is saved even has a right understanding about heaven. But I believe that many, many people, if not most people, believe in some kind of afterlife. And so let's look at this. Number one, there is a universal desire for heaven, a universal desire for heaven. There's a desire for heaven. And I think in every heart, whether they realize it or not, and I say that because God created every heart, every body, and he's created them in his own image. 
And so there is that void of, of looking, longing, knowing God, and knowing that there is something, some significance to heaven. There's a universal desire for heaven. And you see, if you go through the study of history of the people of the world, you see the belief in the afterlife. You see that there is a desire in their heart for heaven. The Australian Aborigines, one of the most ancient peoples, they pictured heaven as a distant island far beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought heaven was an island in the faraway east. The Native Americans in whose land we dwell right now believe that in the afterlife their spirits would hunt the spirits of the buffalo. The um, ancient Babylons would talk about a place of heroes and hints of a tree of life. The pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies were often accompanied by guides, food, by maps that would take them into the afterlife. The Romans believed that the, the righteous would play in the, um, the, uh, the conception of what they had in the Greek mythology of the afterlife where the horses would, would graze nearby. And then there's many other anthropological evidence that suggests that every civilization known to man has some kind of a belief in God and some kind of a, 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 a thought or a body of thoughts concerning heaven. That's why we say that heaven is in the heart of every person. There's a universal desire for heaven because this life is filled with trials and blessings, with troubles and pleasure. And so when we come to the end of this life, there's a desire for something more. We have to think that there's got to be more than this to our life. And there is. There is. I want you to see a second thought, and that is heaven does provide hope. That's why Jesus is giving this, is because there's hope attached to these words. You know that the early Christians emphasized heaven a great deal. In the catacombs in Rome, you'll find the epitaphs of Christians who believe strongly in the resurrection and strongly in heaven. These believers, you remember, they had to go underground because of Roman persecution. And um, they would hide down in these catacombs and, and, uh, because they were going to be tortured and killed if they were caught worshiping God. So under the streets of Rome, there are many caves, many caverns where believers would meet in those caverns where the eyes of the Romans could not see them. And when their loved ones died, they laid them to rest in the catacombs and wrote an epitaph over their body. And in these epitaphs, they would find belief in heaven that you could find uh, just, th this is just years after Jesus spoke these words in John 14, that they're verbalizing their confidence in the very words of Christ. So the early believers believed in heaven a great deal. I read about a fellow while working on this, who had a nagging wife and she nagged him all the time. He just couldn't do anything right. And she was constantly nagging him to do this and do that. And so finally, this old guy died. And I don't know if he died of nagging or something else, but he died. So she put on his tombstone the epitaph that read this, rest in 
peace. You know, he didn't have any peace in this life, so I guess he figured he'd have peace in the next life. Then the will that he left was read before all, and his wife was left behind, and, and she discovered that he left everything, everything he had to his secretary. So she went back to the place where he was buried, and she removed the rest in peace, and she replaced it with, till we meet again. <laughs> well, it didn't really fit anywhere in here, but I just plopped it in here. But epitaphs were very important in the early church. Listen to this one. It's just simple. In Christ... Alexander is not dead, but lives. Another one says, one who lives with God. Now, this is what they had put over the dead in the early, early church days. One historian writes, pictures on the catacomb walls portray heaven with beautiful landscapes, children playing, and people feasting at banquets. There's no picture of somebody floating on a cloud in that description. There's no picture of somebody playing the harp. But people were dwelling in beautiful landscapes, lawns and parks and feasting with banquets and, and, and all kinds of food. It's a, quite a different thought than what people have about heaven today. And then we get to um, Aristides in 125 AD. Now, he wasn't a believer, but he was a Greek scholar who wrote about the believers. And he said, this religion is successful because if any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from this place to eternity. See, believers made much of the death of one of the, their brothers or sisters in Christ. And so they made so much about it that they celebrated it with songs and thanksgiving. The reality is, if you don't know Christ, it's hard to celebrate death. But it, when you know Christ, it can truly be a celebration service. Then Cyprian, the third century church father, when you hear the phrase church father, it just means there's a leader of the church in those days, they just referred to them as church fathers. Um, it'd be like Dr. Childs is the Canaan father. You know, it's just one of those. It's just a, 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 a title. We're not going with that, are we? Um, but he said this concerning um, the this matter. He said, "Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home." which snatches us from this place and sets us free from the snares of this world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom, we regard paradise as our native land. Sort of reminds you of what Paul was saying in Philippians 3 and verse 21. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Not just the early Christians, but how about the New Testament? When you look at, to the New Testament, you'll see the hope of heaven really all throughout the New Testament. 
The Apostle Paul, I've already mentioned him, Philippians 1 and verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, most people don't look at death that way, do they? They believe to die is loss. They lose what they had here. They had to give up their wealth or their position or their popularity or their family. They have to give up this or that. Paul says, I gain. So do we really look at heaven as a place that's better? Do we have a view of heaven like Paul? That's why we need to have a theology of heaven. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That doesn't mean God's presence isn't with us. He's not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when we got saved. But he says we prefer to be away from this body and at home with the Lord forever. Peter spoke of heaven in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then skipping to verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So Peter says our inheritance in heaven is uncorruptible. In other words, nothing can touch it. Nothing can change it. Do you think our stocks and investments and the 401ks are airtight safe? <laughs> no. But our, our home inheritance in heaven is, in a changing world, there is something that doesn't change, and that is the place that God has prepared for you as his people. Remember Jesus, when he too spoke this way on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures in, upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. There will your heart be also. It's a place that is incorruptible. It's an existence that is incorruptible, eternal. Though Christ, through Christ, we have our reservations. And nothing can change those reservations. Nothing. John said it too. Not just Peter and Paul and Jesus, but John in Revelation chapter 7, verses 6 uh, 16 and 17, he saw a glimpse of heaven and people standing before God. He said, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This presentation of John in Revelation is here a group of saints who've gone through some difficult times, some times of severe persecution. They would often go hungry. They were detained. They were denied food and water. They were left out in the burning heat. They were tortured. But he says, in heaven, I see the glimpse of it. No heat's going to burn you. Never will you hunger or thirst again. Never will you be detained or denied. Think about what that means. 
The psalmist too speaks of how God would save our tears and he keeps our tears in a bottle, simply meaning that God takes notice of all the sorrows that you and I may go through here upon this earth in this life. Those tears are precious to God, but there comes a day when God will wipe away all tears and there'll be no more tears, no sorrow, no death. Then look at number three with me tonight. There are some hindering factors to heaven. There are some things that hinder the experience of heaven. One is the brevity of life. You know, one thing you have to do in order to go to heaven, you either have to die or Jesus has to come. One thing hindering us from going to heaven today is that these are our bodies and in these bodies we're alive. And we can't get to heaven in these current bodies. A Sunday school teacher wanted to explain to the six-year-olds in his class and, and uh, what someone has to do to go to heaven. And so he went through a whole list of things. Do I have to sell my house and my car and have a big garage sale and give all my money to the church in order to get to heaven? The children said, no, no, that's not what you do. If I had to clean the church every day and mow the yard and kept everything neat, would I then be able to get into heaven? Again, the answer was no. If I was kind to all the animals and, and gave candy to all the children and loved my wife, would that get me into heaven? And, and they all shouted no he said well then what do I have to do to go to heaven and a boy in the back row stood up and shouted you got to be dead that's true <laughs> you got to be dead for us to go to heaven these bodies have to perish we have to be translated from this world into the world he's prepared for us although that world is not very far away James 4, verse 14, James says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. What is your life like? James says it's just like a vapor, a puff of smoke. It's brief compared to eternity. So he's writing to encourage us to have a proper perspective on our life. Why focus everything on that which is brief and minimize that which would be eternal? We're not going to live here forever. And if we did, we couldn't go to heaven because we've got to leave this life in order to inherit a better life. And so you have the brevity of life. But then there's another thought is the certainty of death. Hebrews 9:27, And it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Now, the truth is, if you've been born twice, you'll only die once. You're born physically, it gives you earthly life. But if you get born the second time from God above, then you have eternal life. Physical birth answers how you get here. Spiritual birth answers how you get there. And if you're born twice, you'll only die once. But if you've only been born once, you're going to have to die twice. You'll die a physical death, and then you're going to die spiritually, which is eternal separation from God. But if you've been born again, that is, you've had a physical birth and a spiritual birth. You've been born twice. You can only die physically. You cannot die spiritually. 
You'll never be separated from God and his love and his heaven and the place where he dwells. So the brevity of life is really germane to the discussion in the certainty of death. David said in Psalm 39, verse 4, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee, for verily, verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. See, David says, I want to make the most out of the life that I have because I know my days are short. But he says, I know my life will end and reveal to me the end of my days. So give me the proper perspective of heaven. And so what is it that would hinder a person from going to heaven? Well, the fact that they're not going to live forever here. And number two, that there is the certainty of death. But that's not all bad news as long as you know the good news. And there is a deliverance from death. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through his death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now he's saying, you don't have to fear death. If you are a believer... You don't need to fear death. But the fear of death is common to the human race. Most people are not looking forward to death because death to them is an enemy. Death to them is an interruption. Death is total, however, in every generation. The best research that I can do, I find mortality is 100% among all human beings. It's definite. Did you get that? Amen. All right, just make sure you got that there. There are no exceptions. When you die, you die. It, you don't get a do-over. Uh, it, it, you expire. And so he's giving us, however, encouragement to have the proper perspective. What is it? Jesus delivered us from this fear of death. When? When he defeated him who had the power of death. Who's that? He tells us the devil. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 was saying. The devil who has the power of death. He defeated him. And so we don't have to fear. Even in the Garden of Eden, we have a hint of heaven because God provides a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 15, you can't deal with this without mentioning this passage. In chapter 15, verse 55 through 57, the great chapter on the resurrection, Paul said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death it's sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. See, the reason that this is read at almost every gravesite is that it talks about victory over Christ. Uh, victory of Christ, rather, over death. He not only defeated sin, but he also defeated death. He rose from the dead on the third day. When he rose from the dead, God was saying, what Jesus has done pleases me. My wrath has been satisfied. Payment has been made in full. And so there's no reason to fear. Let me move on to something else. Again, this is, we're dealing with the theology. So there's, um, I want to give you the, some theological underpinnings. But here's a fourth thought, and that is, 
our unscriptural hesitancy about heaven. Why is it that we are sometimes reluctant to get excited about it? This is not true of everybody, but it's still true of many who are even in the church because of misunderstandings about heaven. Because of preachers such as me not preaching about heaven enough, not explaining about heaven enough. It's not taught that much in Bible schools and Bible colleges and seminaries. And yet people have some wrong concepts. Karen, who was five, was more excited about going to school kindergarten on her first day. And she was getting more and more excited. And Jamie, three, watched her big sister with fascination. On the Sunday, however, before the first day of school... Karen fell and she skinned up her knees. And as Karen's crying, Jamie tries to comfort her by saying, Don't worry, Karen, if you die, you'll go to heaven. But Karen cried even louder. She said, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to live. Well, people have hesitancies about heaven. And we may not quite say them, but I think that they exist. And some people have hesitancy about heaven that they wouldn't confess. Let me just throw out a few. Maybe some have hesitancy because thinking of heaven as an unending church service. Some see heaven as an unending church service where all we're going to do is sing hymns forever and ever and ever. They think that if we go to heaven, it's going to be that way. And that's fine, but we're going to get bored with that after a while. That's the concept that some people have of heaven. It's going to be boring. Maybe that's why um, has the motivation is set in for many preachers and many churches to go along with it to cancel services because of boredom. And then to think this is what we got to do in heaven for eternity. Well, let's not do too much of it here then. I want to tell you one of the things that will cure boredom is to experience God. But that's a wrong concept of heaven. Maybe people have had that because we, again, as ministers, preachers, have given the concept and misconception to people, but that's not heaven at all. There's another concept, misconception, and that is when we go to heaven, we're going to sit on clouds and play a harp. And yet, we have clouds in the screen up there. Um, it's hard. Brother Cherry is given a task to try to figure out how to make something fit with the, the theme of heaven. With, and then I bring up clouds in here. But some people really do think heaven is where they're going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Now, I wouldn't mind sitting on a cloud playing a harp for a while. But before long, I kind of think it, it too might get boring. Is that all that there is to heaven? No, it's no wonder nobody wants to go if that's what they're thinking. You know, if we're getting up a bus to go to heaven today, not many people are going to volunteer if that's all they're going to do is sit on some clouds and play a harp. What we're going to see in this series of heaven is that heaven's going to be very much, I believe, like earth, except without the curse that is upon the earth. And God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. 
There's also this intermediate heaven that we go to when we die and upon death we go to a place that would be an intermediate state or heaven and, and it differs in, from the eternal. We'll talk about that. But there's an awful lot of misconceptions that people have that causes us to not want to talk too much about it. How do you convince somebody that you're going to change your clothes and, and you're going to wear a white bed sheet sitting on a cloud playing a harp? Well, some people are hesitant because of the certainty of judgment. And, um, and I don't think I'd put this up there um, Brother Cherry. But it is something that, that I think comes to mind. Now, we don't hear many sermons anymore about judgment and the dread of, of hell. But the fact is, those are prominent themes in the Bible. They just may not be prominent in pulpits today. But people who do think of that, they may think, I don't want to go experience more judgment knowing that there is a judgment seat of Christ. There's another misconception and that would be uh, beliefs would vary uh, widely but an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that there's life after death but their views of heaven vary significantly. Some to thinking that it's a place that is going to be very uh, static, very just, it's almost a state of unconsciousness. Now, there are those who believe there is um, a, a soul sleep in, in which there will be, there, you will cease to exist. But then there are those who have this, and a lot of the, this mixed Eastern uh, religion and myst, myst, uh, mystical ideas coming into the, the equation have this, it's a trance-like state in heaven. And that would be to them, many of them, a utopia. But it's just so many things that, and we maybe get hybrids of that in our churches. But the truth is, there's very little teaching. Again, in churches, and I'd be guilty of, of that, Bible colleges. And, but in Revelation 21, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And he sees the holy city coming down from God out of heaven. And when God creates the new heaven and earth, that holy city will just be a part of what God creates. And the city itself will not be all that will be there. Heaven will consist of much, much more. And I believe it will be something like the Garden of Eden. It will be what many people think as a place of paradise. It will be perfect. And I want you to remember, however, that Satan is a liar. And his favorite pastime is lying. I think reasons we're hesitant about heaven is because we've bought into Satan's lies. Satan loves to lie and he's the father of it. The Bible says he loves, loves to lie about the subjects that God used, that Jesus used to bring encouragement and comfort to people's hearts. He doesn't want God's people, believers, to be anxious or look forward to what they have in heaven. I believe Satan puts out lies. He seeks to slander God and what God says. He seeks to slander God's people. He doesn't need to convince us that heaven doesn't exist. We believe it does. He just is trying to convince us that it is really meaningless. 
And I think no one would confess that they believe that. But, but I believe if I were to ask you, if you're honest, how many have ever wondered, would you really enjoy it? Or what, what does it have for you? And, and I think some have even, have even thought at times that the only way I could enjoy such a place is God would have to change me because in my current state of, of I know what I like and what I don't like, I just don't know that I see much there that's for me. I'm going to tell you, Satan has, has, has lied an awful lot. Revelation 13, 6, he's talking about Satan and he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. There's another hesitancy and, and I didn't put this one up there either, but I, I got to be careful about this because I believe in praying for those who are sick. I believe people get healed. Still, sometimes when we pray for the sick, I sometimes think we pray as though we don't believe that the place where they are going is better than the place where they are. There are a lot worse places than heaven, you know. Well, would you prefer the rest home? Would you prefer being hooked up as a vegetable for the rest of your life and many things like that? And there's a lot worse places to be than heaven. And so when someone's praying, oh God, don't take them to heaven. Oh, we don't pray it that way, but sometimes we think that. And it's because I think we've bought into some of the lies that heaven is quite not the place that maybe that Jesus said it was. Yet we will pray no matter what for people to be healed when God wants to take them to heaven. However, we want them to go. When God wants to take me to heaven, I want to go. That's why sometimes our prayers are not answered. Sometimes even in the church, we don't act like heaven is an exciting place to go. It may be a wheelchair or being in the hospital or being an invalid all your life. We sometimes would think, well, that's better than if God wants me to go to heaven. If God wants me to go to heaven, being completely well and healed here is a lot lesser station in life. If that's where God wants you to be in heaven, Paul says it's gain. It's far better. Now, I want to close with this. I want you to have a scripturally inspired imagination of heaven. I think I worded that the right way. Because God gave you a brain to think and he gave us the scripture. That's our authority. When you look around at this earth, you see what is beautiful to you. There's nothing wrong with imagining what it would be like if it had no corruption. You can imagine it without sin or death or pain or any of those things. Just imagine this beautiful world without the curse that is upon it, without weeds, without thistles, without the curse that is upon the ecology without days that are too cold or too hot. Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book on heaven, he writes, 
Many assume heaven would be unlike earth. But why do we think this? God designed earth for human beings. And nearly every description of heaven includes references to earthly things. Eating, music, animals, water, trees, fruits, and a city with gates and streets. The Bible speaks of the new heavens and a new earth, not a non-heavens and non-earth. New doesn't mean fundamentally different, but vastly superior. If someone says, I'm going to give you a new car, you'd get excited. Why? Not because you have no idea what a car is, but because you do know. When you think about heaven, don't just think of clouds. Think about this world with a scripturally guided imagination. Think of this world only without the things of sin that Satan has brought to it. Think of flowers that are undying, grass that is unwithering. Think of the blue sky with no pollution. Think of the most beautiful place you've ever seen on this earth. Think about friends and family you've known who love Jesus and now they are with him in heaven. Think about them playing and laughing and talking and reminiscing. Think about the happiest time your family has ever had. Think about walking along and, and plucking fruit off of a tree. And when you bite into it, it's so sweet and tastes so good. It's like nothing you've ever tasted. Think about someone coming towards you with a big smile on their face. And then you stop and you see that it's Jesus. And you fall down in worship. Then he picks you up and puts you his arms around you, and he tells you just how special you are to him. This is the way I think we ought to think about heaven. I want you to ask God to reveal heaven to you in this study, to give you a glimpse of heaven, the beauty of heaven, the joy of heaven. Because truly our forefathers, our Christian ancestors, they believed that heaven was a blessing and to live in this world and to go to the next was a far better place to be than any place in this life. And Jesus said to his anxious disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now let me stop there and say, I've often hear people say, if he's been working at it for 2,000 years, it must be a special place. I don't think he's talking about heaven there. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, he's telling him what he's about to do that night and the next day. They're not getting to heaven because the carpenter is picking up some materials up in heaven and doing a work. No, he's going to the cross to prepare a place for them. And because of that, he says, I can then come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Amen. Do you know there were some who died just days after the resurrection? He didn't say, 2,000 years, you got to wait, I'm not finished with your room. No, when he came out of 
that grave he had conquered and it was all won. The victory was won and he could now come back. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, which also said, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let's stand together, please.